There were 37 million Americans that moved that year. Three and a half million of those moved for a job. Three and a half million. So if you take all of the relocation that the RMCs total, I can't get over a half a million. If I use their stated numbers, I can't get over a half a million. So what that tells me is there are three and a half million people that work because of a job and the RMCs only have 12% of that volume. So even if I can't beat the RMCs with this product, our client didn't use an RMC. Our launch client was not with an RMC because the RMC didn't have the technology or they were too expensive and they weren't willing to pay the price. So you look at that and you go, you know, that's not, for those of you that read the book, that's not a red ocean, that's a blue ocean. There's a lot of opportunity there. So we knew that we were onto something. Hey everybody, what is going on? Welcome to the GMI Rocket Show. I'm your host, Roman Zelichenko. I'm a former immigration attorney turned entrepreneur and the founder of Laborless, which is an H-1B compliance automation startup and also GMI Rocket, which is a digital marketing agency for immigration and global mobility and also which brings you this show, which I absolutely love. And I'm so excited today to bring on for episode 55, our guest, Chris Klein, who is the co-founder and CMO, so Chief Marketing Officer of Mobility Empowered, uh, which is a really cool, almost like all-encompassing kind of relocation, global mobility, online marketplace. Um, it helps connect folks who are relocating to service providers. It helps companies and clients track folks who are relocating. We're going to learn all about it. I think this is a fascinating space right now because um, there are a lot of people moving around the world. There have been for a really long time, of course. Um, but tracking all these folks, you know, there's immigration tech, which I talk about all the time, but that really helps you track the kind of the visa process, right? But once they get the visa, what happens next? There's a whole heap of things that happen. I'm consistently learning about this. I always mention as an immigration lawyer, I feel like I always had blinders on and it was like, once the visa is done, you clean your hands. But of course, there is so, so much more. Um, and it's really cool to see tech being built around the kind of entire process, right? So the moving, the relocating, the settling, getting their stuff over, et cetera. Um, so I could go on about this, of course, forever. Uh, but so let's bring in Chris Klein. Chris, thank you so much for being here. I'm super excited to to chat with you. Hello, Rum. Thanks for having me today. Yeah, of course. Um, you know, I I'll whenever I have immigration, just strictly immigration guests, or when I have this conversation. You know, it feels like immigration is a whole world. But when I actually left the practice of immigration law and really started learning much more about the kind of broader global mobility space, I mean, it's so funny because, you know, you go to law school and it's like the end all be all. And you realize you're just a tiny little part of this really big process of moving folks from one country to another. And then, of course, everything that not just the person has to think about, but the company has to think about. And so I just I love zooming out and sort of seeing what's happening at the kind of higher level, you know? What I wanna really talk about today is jumping into your story, right? So we're gonna get into, of course, Mobility Empowered, how, you know, what the company does, how you built it. Um, but I wanna jump in and just kind of learn a little bit more about you, right? Where you grew up, what were you like as a kid? I always find it interesting to see if, you know, you're entrepreneurial, were you selling lemonade or were you, you know, kind of like in the books and things like that. Chris. So we were just chatting before we went live and, you know, you said you, you have family that has spent time in and you have spent a lot of time in sort of the Hudson Valley and you know upstate New York area. I'm based in New York City. Is this where you're from, that area? 
I actually um, was born in Ohio. My parents were, my mom was from Ohio. My dad was from uh, central Pennsylvania. And then I was born and lived in Ohio until about 11 years old. And then part of the mass migration of the Rust Belt, uh, everybody went south in the late 70s. And I moved from a suburb of Cleveland, Ohio to South Florida. Lived in South Florida, grew up to high school in South Florida. And then we were kind of a boomerang. So the families that left places like Ohio, Michigan, Pennsylvania to go to Florida realized they went too far south and they all boomeranged back up to Georgia or Alabama, we ended up in the Atlanta area. Interesting. Why, yeah. why, why do you think, like, why too far south? What does that mean? Like, no, was there not a lot of business opportunities or something like that? It's just the culture. I mean, I, I live in Florida today. I'm wearing my colors. I'm wearing my Florida Hawaiian shirt. It's Friday, so I'm ready. You know, I'm wearing the team colors today. Um, it's just a different culture, and it was a really different culture back then in the in the late 70s, early 80s. You know, Florida was known for a lot of things that were not business-friendly, right, and not a lot of good things. And um, what was interesting is you had people from all over the world, and it was very different than growing up in, in middle America. So families were different. People were different. The things they did were different. And then I think just culturally, it was just, it was too dirty. You didn't have four seasons anymore. So a lot of the things that my parents had become accustomed to as they were growing up didn't seem like the right choices. So you move to a place like Georgia and you start getting a, a lot of those types of things again. So uh, just sense of communities, your, your four seasons, those types of things. Better At that time, it was definitely a better business climate. How old were you when your family moved down? It was 11. 11. Okay. So you, I mean, you, you'd sort of formed your early years were formed a little bit mm -hmm. further North. Was it, I mean, did you miss the, Like I love the winter. And so even though I enjoy warm weather, I feel like I would hate it if I didn't have seasons, you know, the fall and the snow. And I don't know, did you miss that at all? Or were you kind of like along for the ride? You know, I miss some of it, but the, again, you know, we all talk about climate change and, and Ohio doesn't get as much snow as it used to, but it still give, gets enough snow to not want to be there, you know, year round. And as a kid, you didn't go outside. I mean, when it got to October, you had your first snowfall and, you know, I can remember riding a bike in late April and there were still snow piles on the road. So, you know, by moving to Florida, I was, you know, I, I didn't worry about snow. I was, I was able to be outside year round. It was great. That's true. Yeah, you do. I guess as a kid, especially if you're sort of active and you want to be out with, with friends or, or otherwise, it's definitely nicer to just I, I do think about that sometimes, too. In the cold months, I just think, man, I, I wish I could just still go outside. <laughs> like, right. Yeah, that that's crazy. And so you went to so you went to high school down in Florida and then you boomeranged uh, back up up north. Mm -hmm. Did you so what after high school, did you go to college? Did you start working? Like what, what was your journey? So when we moved down, I was in middle school. And then when it came time to move to Atlanta, I was a junior in high school. So, and my parents decided, okay, this is what we're going to do. We moved over Christmas of my junior year. You know, it was absolutely a shock to go through that relocation because you're leaving all your friends behind. And, and um, I, in high school, I played football and I wrestled. So, you know, during that time of year, you're heavy into the wrestling season and the tournaments and all that kind of stuff. Um, but they decided that we were going to move to Georgia and we didn't just move to Georgia. Uh, we moved to a town called Snellville, um, which was known for the mayor called it. It's not Snellville, it's Swellsville, if you actually come and spend time here. So um, very small high school. Again, compared to South Florida, my high school there was 4,500 students. Wow. I moved to the, that high school. We had about 1,000 um, students. And again, very different because this was, you know, the, the South has changed a lot. Um, but in those years, the South was still the South. They People talked, I certainly talked different than anybody. I mean, I lived in South Florida and came from Ohio. So I had an accent that, you know, they had never heard before. Um, but 
but you know it was really great and and again working in mobility you know there's a whole thought out there hey wait till the end of the school year and then move the kids um my move to florida was during the summer and it was horrible because you don't meet anybody by doing it in the middle of the year i was thrown right into every i mean i we literally got there over christmas christmas break was over and practice started even before classes went back in. So um, got fully acclimated, got met a bunch of friends, and it was a very smooth transition. So finished finished high school there. And then I had, uh, when I finished high school, I actually went into the Navy. So I graduated from high school. At the time, I thought I was going to be a builder. I thought I was going to build homes. I was, while I was in high school, I framed, I was a framing carpenter while I was in high school and thought that's why I, I just want to go become a builder. And then I, I went to the Navy and I became a CB, which is the construction battalion of the Navy, and went into that for a while. And then when I was going through that, I realized, hey, this is a good career, but it's, it's probably not what I want to do. I thought I wanted to go do something more on an entrepreneurial, not necessarily building houses. Part of that was, you know, it was 1981. So interest rates were at 18, 19%. There weren't a lot of homes being built at that time. So kind of looked at that. And said, so that was probably my first, yeah, that would have been my first career shift. And, and how old were you when you, so you went to the Navy at, I guess, 18? So yeah. I actually went in 17. I had my parents allow me to go and sign for me to go in at 17. Wow. Okay. And, um, and, and how long, when did you decide, like, when did you have this sort of mental transition? How, like, how long were you in the Navy for, I guess? So I was in for six years. And, and during this time, it, you know, again, it was 1981 and the military was kind of going through a whole uh, renaissance. It was going from that, you know, you had the whole period post-Vietnam through the different administrations. And, you know, there was less of a focus on the military. So it had gotten to a point where it was certainly nothing that we were proud of. So as when Reagan became president, one of his initiatives was to absolutely build back up the military. And it started with the Navy. So the Navy went out with some really good educational packages, which were you could go in you could join up and they had different financial packages as you signed up. So you basically get a lot of your college paid for depending on your enlistment, but they were also looking for the right profile, the right person. And they actually had programs to where you could go to basic training, you could go to your A school, and then you go back home and you're in reserves the rest of the time. And at any point during that, if you decide to go full enlisted, they would take you in and, and you would be full enlisted. So I was... Um, Gosh, it was probably six, seven months uh, between my boot camp and my school. And then I came home and the rest of the time I spent in in the reserves. But I was able to get money for college and uh, it helped me get to go to school. Wow. I I also think like right now, I mean, interest rates for 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 mortgages are so low. And, and obviously there's been a housing. I don't know if you call it a bubble, but at the very least, it's been a boom. Mm-hmm. And, and I, you think about how few people, you know, at least from my perspective, I guess I'm from the city and maybe everyone here, you know, from New York City, everyone wants to go into finance or, or like law. Um, but how few people want to proactively go in and build and do things with their hands. But mm-hmm. you realize that's the that's what our society is built on. You know, like we need people to build homes. We need people to fix things. We need people to construct and deconstruct. Like we can't all just sit behind computers and type away. That's not how how life works. So, you know, I really kind of hope we go back to that, to like, you know, having glory and having pride and doing something with your hands. And you don't need to go to like a four year degree and a master's. Like, I don't know. I, I find that really, I find it really cool that you kind of were already thinking about that. And you obviously, if you wanted to do it, you know, you played sports and all that. So you, I'm sure you had some level of like, self-pride and confidence you wanted to do that right there was a positive sort of association with that which is i don't know super cool i think 
you know, it's interesting. I can, my family, I still have family that lives back in Atlanta. When I go there, you know, there's houses that I built 40 years ago, Wow! right? I can go by those neighborhoods and say, you know, I remember building that neighborhood. So yeah, it lasts. That's cool. That's really cool. I need your help a little bit because I'm, I'm building stuff in my, in my cabin upstate and I don't know the first thing about it. So YouTube's your best friend. <laughs> right. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. So, okay. So you came back and you, you know, you, you, I guess enrolled in college and um, what did you, what did you study? Business. So I, I came back and, and again, I always, I never planned on really going away to college. This, the economics weren't there. So the whole goal was I would find a job when I got back home, I would work and then I'd go to night school and get my education that way. So came back to Atlanta, uh, thought I was going to go into the construction. Literally all the crews that I had worked with in the past, they weren't working anymore. The builders that I knew were not building anymore. And it actually got to the point where the way that my dad was, this is like, he, you know, you got to go get a job regardless of what it is, but go get a job kind of a thing, right? So I literally, close to the house, there was a, a new apartment complex going in and the only jobs that were available was actually working on the construction site while they were putting the pipes in. And I was the guy that was, you know, taking the loose dirt out from around the pipes. That's how bad the economics were at that wow. time. And then, but, you know, hey, that's a job. You, you know, you gotta, you gotta do whatever. And then while I was doing that, started going to a local community college and you know, I, I did that for about six months. And then it was pretty amazing. We then got into 1982 and the economy started to turn around quite a bit. Um, but even at that time, I kind of figured I had kind of changed my mind, even though construction was coming back, I kind of decided, you know, that maybe that's not for me. And I said, you know, I, I really like selling. I've all, you know, I, I've always felt that it was something that I did well as a communicator. And I just said, you know, I, I think I want to go sell computers. I want to go sell, sell technology. And I went to community college and I said, you know, um, I'm going to take some business classes, but I also went to um, an electronics institute. I went to DeVry. And while I was going to DeVry, I went to school there for about eight months. And, and this is what's interesting. And I have two daughters um, and they're, you know, they have their own kids now. And I remember when they were going to college, both of the kids, the one child looked at college as this is what I'm going to be doing for the next four or five years. And I reminded her that it'll only be four years. So she probably needs to have a four year plan to get through school. But the other one was, I want to get through school as quickly as I can, because I want to go get a job. And her mindset from the beginning was I'm going to college to get a job. And that was my mindset. Hmm. So I'm going to school. I'm, I'm at your very expensive, even with the government the, the uh, GI program, still very expensive. And, and it, it's incredible at that point because it was a trade school and they would advertise that, hey, we don't, you know, we don't have the same enrollment standards you can get in here. If you're, you know, if you're not good enough in math or science, we'll do the remedial stuff. It'll be fine. We started off with two classes and there were over a hundred people in those two classes. By the end of the first trimester, I think we had 25 kids um, because the, the pace, I mean, just the you know, you, you, I had about, I think I had 21 hours plus you had six to seven hours of labs a week. Plus the, it was just incredible. But, you know, the interesting thing is, is I, as I was going through there, managed to meet some people that were just starting in the telecommunication, you know, in, in that era, it, we were looking at deregulation. So you no longer had to go through the bell companies for your long distance or anything else. And one of those pioneering companies was based in Atlanta. And I was able to go from the different jobs that I had, and I was able to get a night shift with them. And that's kind of how, I got into into telecommunications. And then while I was on there, while I was working there, Northern Telecom was doing an install, got to know the installers, got to know the project manager, and he ended up offering me a job. So I actually never finished Devry because the whole goal was to get a job to something like that in technology that would then, then the degree would come in to help me go sell that technology at some point. That was the, that was the career plan. And when you said, you said that you got to know the installers, do you think that your sort of, you know, prior life sort of building 
homes and working at this building and all that kind of stuff. Like, do you think that allowed you to have a better conversation with these folks who were doing the installing and, you know, to make that relationship? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, it wasn't just that, but it was the caliber of the people that were in communications or their background. They were almost all ex-military because a lot of the latest technology had come from the military, right? So every one of the guys on the sites were either ex-Air Force or ex-Navy. So there was rapport automatically. And then, you know, these individuals actually kind of got interested in what I was learning in school. And even the, the general manager of that facility would you know, I, I'd actually have to share my report card with them. My grades came out, I'd have to share it with them. And, you know, he, he helped all of that. And then when the, when the installers came in, the training that I had already geared me to, to, to go right into this. And, and at that point, the telecommunications industry was moving from analog to digital. Mm -hmm. So I actually had the opportunity, I went to work for them to work on some of the oldest technology they had, but it got me a connection to the new installs, which was all the digital, which was, you know, at that time was, it was all very cutting edge and, and, and was able to get into that and go to work full-time with Northern Telecom. I love that. That's so cool. I always think about like, what are we going through right now? That's the equivalent of kind of, you know, when broadband was becoming more prevalent. And then of course, at the very, very beginning of the internet, I guess a lot of folks can say the blockchain technology and things like that, but it's fascinating to, to hear this. Do you think you would have benefited from relocation counseling? Really interesting question. Yeah. How do you feel about that? Um, well, it's one of the areas that I'm extremely passionate about. You know, I, I've been in the, I've been in the RMC space since 1993, right? So that's how long I've been in the RMC space. And, you know, the whole idea of what an RMC does is to help employees, you know, go through the relocation, help the families, help the corporation. But it's very, the traditional model is extremely expensive. It's not inexpensive and it requires a lot of the clients to have very robust policies and plans that include tax protected home sale programs or home sale buyouts or those types of things. And what it does is it ends up not making that type of support accessible to a lot of the companies that are out there. And I think that that's a travesty. I think there's a lot of um, companies, clients that I've worked with in the past and they, you know, they'll do just, a, you know, they'll do a lump sum of some amount. And, and that amount, by the way, might be, I've worked with clients before that do $100,000 lump sum. So they're not always, you know, $2,500 lump sums. They're significant, but then they leave it up to the employee to do everything on their own. So, you know, the idea that you have to spend a lot of money to provide counseling and support to your relocating employees is actually one of the arguments that we make at you know at Mobility Empowered is you no, know, you don't have to. So you don't you don't have to spend a lot of money to get access to vetted suppliers. You don't have to spend a lot of money to get access to discounts and deals and those types of things, right? So there's so many things that a company can do for their employees that you don't have to break the bank on to get them support through the reload. Because yeah. it is, I, I will tell you, it is. There's nothing fun about going through a relocation. I, I, no matter what anybody says, it's not fun. Yeah. Yeah. Even if you're single, you don't have, you know, kids coming or spouse coming right. with you. You're still coming to a new place, especially if it's international, new culture, potentially new language, mm -hmm. potentially you don't have a bank set up. I mean, there's so much to it. Um, so I, I guess that that's, you know, it, it's a really it's a great segue because I'm curious, how did you end up going from the telecommunication? Because if you spent if you stayed in telecom right now, you could have been, you know, the CEO of, you know, some, I mean, I guess Mobility Empowered is a tech company, you know, but right. I, you could have been the CEO of like a Facebook or something like that. But you obviously you did shift your career first and foremost to the mobility space. And then you, of course, you came back uh, into the technology world. How did you make that? Like, what was that bridge from telecom, which was booming? You had this in, you had this knowledge and, and education into mobility. 
Uh, actually, a, a lot of my friends thought it was one of the dumbest decisions I, I was going to make. So I ended up going to work for Northern Telecom. They send me to uh, from Atlanta to San Diego. I oversee a, a sprint site in San Diego. Loved it. My wife had, and I had just got married, moved to San Diego. We're on a project for, I think it was 14 or 16 months. Uh, and this is one of those, those situations where once you get the system installed, once it goes through all the testing, you turn it over to like a sprint and you turn over their technicians and their operations people and you're on call. You might show up for a, a monthly meeting, maybe twice a month, you're going to show up to meet and look at the, you know, how's the system performing? If there's upgrades, you might go in the middle of the night to go do that. But for the most part, you're, you're just having fun. I mean, if you got a good job, you work the first three months are brutal. I mean, you're working a little, I, I would have a cot in the, in the switch room because you're, you're having to run tests. And if it fails, you got to start it over. And then this is a constant. And until that happens, happens, um, you can't sign the system over to the customer. So you go through all that. So a lot of work. And then for the next eight, nine months, um, you know, I went to college. I mean, I, I didn't, I really didn't have to go to work. So it was a really nice job. And then the contract expired. And then they gave me a choice. They said, okay, we can, you can go to Rialto, California, Washington, DC. And keep in mind, this would have been in 87. So there weren't a whole lot of people signing up to go to Washington, DC in 1987. So, um, or you can go to Honolulu, Hawaii. And I'm like, hmm, I, I think I'll, I don't think I have to think about this a whole lot. I'll go to Hawaii. So um, we get transferred out to Hawaii. We, you know, it, it gets set up there. It's, a, it's a, again, a great experience. We get out there and um, it's a very successful site. At this time, again, it's another sprint site, but it's carrying 25% of the international call volume from the U.S. over into Asia through that site. So it's a pretty significant project, a lot of exposure. Um, it, it's also in Hawaii, so you can imagine every executive with Northern Telecom was was that had to be on their bucket list to go um, to go check that site out, right? <laughs> so then, yeah, so this was 1987. So my next project, the contract was coming up, and it was time now for me even possibly to get promoted to a pro into project management. And it was the 88 Olympics that were coming up coming up in Seoul. And the project was we um, we want to consider you for the project manager position in Seoul. Uh, it's going to be a two-year assignment. And, you know, this is kind of what you're doing. And I talked to my wife about it and she goes, are you insane? Um, I have no desire. This is, again, when you got to talk to your spouse and your partner, she goes, maybe London, maybe Paris, you know, maybe back to the U.S. That, that might be what you want to do. But, um, you know, I'm not crazy about Seoul, Korea. If you want to go, fine, we'll go. But, you know, it's not, it's not exactly on the top of my bucket list. So um, we talked about it. We went home for Christmas and my father-in-law was in the moving business. He worked for Atlantic North American, which is now an Atlas agent, but they were the largest North American agent at the time. And he says, he goes, do you want to go to South Korea? And I go, not especially. I mean, it's not on the top of my list. He goes, but it seems like a pretty big project. I said, yeah, it's really pretty cool. He says, you know, why are you doing what you're doing? I said, you know, I want to learn the technology so I could go sell this stuff. He goes, does that get you closer to selling this stuff? And I said, no, I go, not really. He goes, well, when do you think that'll happen? I said, Realistically, I do the project management thing for a couple of years. Then I get consideration as a sales engineer, probably do that for three to five years. And then I'll probably get a position, get an opportunity to actually go out there and go directly into sales business development. And he goes, okay, is that a timeline you're comfortable? And I said, no. And he goes, you know, North American has a whole buy, a high value products division and it's logistics. It, it's what logistics are today, but they were kind of a front runner. And it was, you know, working with high tech equipment, getting it from the plants to the sites, 
bunch of project management. And I actually did that on the sites. I would receive everything. Um, and as part of the install, you'd work with the movers and the warehouses and the shipping companies and do all that stuff. And I'm like, so you're asking me to leave Northern Telecom to be a mover? And he goes, well, not only that, and I, I had done some office move jobs and that kind of stuff too when I was going to school. And he goes, well, not just that. He goes, but you'll probably make half of what you're making right now. And it's in Houston, Texas. And I don't want to take anything away from Houston, Texas, but it's not Hawaii, other, right? Other than they both start with H. So took the job, um, went down there. And uh, and the whole idea was to be in logistics. And, you know, again, I was in sales. I loved it. That's kind of, again, the next pivot. And that's that's how I got into the space. And then while I was working there, I had a chance to um, compete a lot with Armstrong, uh, the United agent, which was also in Texas. And then also in my every move that I had with Northern Telecom, Armstrong was actually my mover. They were the ones that handled my move. Had no idea that I would go to work for them someday. But while I was at North American, got to know the people at Armstrong and they were just launching a concept that had become primacy, which was the best way to describe it. It was logistics for people versus equipment. And um, that's how I got into the space. Wow. Been in it ever since. And so, I mean, I think it's a huge, I want to pause at the moment where, you know, it's your, obviously your father-in-law was giving you a compelling kind of argument from the perspective of, look, this can get you on the road to doing the thing that you want to do more quickly. But there are so many kind of objective things weighing against that. Less pay, you're not going to live in you know such an, an exotic place. You know, I guess, I suppose the company may have been either smaller or more local or, or, or things mm-hmm. like that. <clears throat> so kind of what made you decide? I mean, did you think, all right, now is the time for me to take this hit financially, take this hit maybe lifestyle-wise, quote-unquote, for the ability to in much less time get to the position that I want to get to or like I don't know how, because I think you know when I think about folks who are watching the show who are either or listening to the show who are either um, in the industry or maybe want to start their own business or want to build a technology company there's going to be a decision at some point that sounds like a crazy one <laughs> right right and they're going to have to make it and and I feel like at least for me when I was making that decision I kind of knew in my heart that I wanted to make it, but I needed to hear enough people, enough other people's reasonings right? and say, you know what, if they did it and they had the same fears that I did, I'm going to be okay. So what were some of your kind of maybe internal dialogues or reasonings that if you can remember um, yeah, no, it, it was really all about, I've got a nice, secure job. It, it's, it was a high profile job. I mean, even when I took the job originally with Northern Telecom, I think I was, I had just, I think I was about to turn 20. So, you know, most of my friends were still in college and here I am going to Hawaii on, a, on an assignment already. Right. So that has a certain amount of prestige to it. Right. And you're in this role and, and you're moving along within that career, but it, it really, and as much as I like the tech, I, I wouldn't say that I love the tech. It wasn't like I, you know, I'm one of those kind of, and I have good friends, man, they'll sit there in front of that computer all day, you know, going through a bug and they love it. And it just, it makes them really excited that that wasn't me. I liked what the technology did, but I didn't necessarily want to be the person that was maintaining that particular stuff. So it was kind of an easy decision for me only because I felt that, you know, even if this doesn't work, even if I had, you know, as a fallback, I'm now in sales. I'm now going to learn those skills. So, okay, maybe it doesn't work. Maybe I hate it. Right. And, um, but if I can at least be successful at it, there's nothing that keeps me from going in, going back to the same company, but going in the sales channel now because I have actual sales experience. So I didn't really see, and I was young enough at the time where it was just, you know, at that age, you make a mistake. It's not going to be, you know, it's not going to ruin you forever. You can bounce back. So um, for me, it was, you know, it took the cut and pay. It was, it was, you know, that was difficult to do. Um, 
and that was that first year. But then the second year, I doubled what I made with Northern Telecom. And again, you know, if you're going to be in sales, I hope you're motivated somewhat by income because if you're not, you can probably find other things to do. And you know, that's that's our measurement, right? That's what that's how salespeople are measured by their by their sales and their their income. And that second full year, I uh, I ended up doubling my income that I wow. had made at Northern Telecom. So it was the right decision. Yeah, and and I actually I really like the concept of look if it doesn't work out unless you burned the bridge, right. you can probably go back to your past employer. Worst case scenario to the exact position you had previously, but mm-hmm. probably the more realistic scenario is you now leverage this new skill you've taken at this other job and you know either do something different or greater at your prior employer. Um, and I feel like people don't think that. I feel like people are afraid to leave because they think if they leave, you know, the employer is going to hate them and they'll never take mm-hmm. them back. But you know, business is business. A good employer will look at you and say, Chris, we love having you and you're really great at what you do, but I totally understand why you make want to make this move. Door is always open, but best of luck. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think a lot of employers would do that. Um, and I, I don't know, I guess it's a reminder for folks to, to you know, to not worry as much and kind of like take the, take the leap of faith. And, and if worst case scenario, you backtrack and say, hey, thought it was a good idea, tried it, didn't love it. Can I come back? Well, the world's so different now. I mean, when I think about when I made that career change, I mean, it wasn't normal for somebody to have already changed three jobs in the first part of their career. It was not normal, especially you've now made three career pivots. I mean, that was very unusual when you think about it at the time. It's not unusual today, right? And and even, you know, when you think about the, the areas of training that you focused on even back then, it was, I needed to learn how to be a framer, an expert framer. That was going to be my skill set. And I was going to move, if I was going to be a builder, then I learned how to do concrete. And I learned how to do roofing. And you learn these other disciplines and that's how your your career progressed. Today, it's not so, I mean, the, the information, you know, when I think about the technology that I learned at Northern Telecom, it's obsolete today, right? I mean, think about that and think about how quickly even the technology that we're working with today, where it'll be five years from now. So, and, and I, I don't remember, it was one of the, it was something that I, one of these conversations that I was on and the person said, it's all about your adaptability now. It's not really about what you know, right? It's because you're going to be constantly pressured to change and learn and adapt. Yeah, the rate of change right now is highly accelerated, especially of mm-hmm. technology. But but then some of these other skills, you know, they don't change very often. This, the human being, you know, interpersonal skills where you're a human being mm-hmm. talking to another human being, it doesn't matter if you're talking about the latest tech or moving an old piece of furniture. You're still working with a client on a on a personal rela- uh, you know, on a personal basis. Um, mm-hmm. I, yeah, I, I love that. Adaptability is definitely key. Well, even even when you talk about education, so so I, I can look at some things that I can look at. And again, I didn't I didn't go to Ivy League schools, but I you know going to night school and going to community colleges and that type of thing. What really is great about that is a lot of the in, instructors were actually in the real world. I mean, they they had a job, right? And they were teaching night school. This was their this was their side hustle, so to speak. And I'll never forget my law class. I mean, here's a guy that ran a successful business, and that whole class was as a business owner. I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna expand your thinking to where someday when you have a business, you're not going to get sued and lose it all. 
that was the introduction to that class, right? And I thought, wow, that I mean, that's they don't, we didn't right. That's that's something unbelievable. And then as as we're going through, this is what contract law is about, and this is why you have a, this is what makes the contract and those types. And I think about that. That was really good. You know, a basic accounting class, the basics of accounting that really hasn't changed, right? There's debits and credits. You have an income statement. You have a balance sheet, and that's the measurement of how your company's doing. But then I go back even further, and I think you know the best customer service I ever learned was waiting tables. I mean, the, the, you absolutely yeah. the best training. And you want to talk about immediate feedback? It's going to come in the form of that tip, <laughs> right? They're going to let you know right away what they thought of your service. That that whatever. But you know, the, I had some really good teachers and some good managers about efficiencies. And then I go even further back into the Navy education. And you know, I was on a, I, on Ed's show. You know, he's saying, "Tell me about you know your military training and that type of thing." You know, there's still concepts from that that I use today. The whole thing about the vision and and the plan and and what you hope to ex- uh, execute on. You know, another concept was the fog of war. You know, you can go into a battle and at best you might be able to execute at 70 percent. the other 30 percent is going to be delivered to you at that moment so what are you going to do right? right so as a business owner dealing with the pandemic dealing with all kinds of things um you can only predict so much and then everything else is going to shape how you respond so that's where you know you, you you go back on military training you go back on the things that i learned waiting tables right and the basics and a lot of those basics are are fundamentals to running a business What I really love about that is I think it can encourage people who want to start a business or make a career change to remember that it's not their last job or maybe their only job that defines who they are, but it's their high school job. It's their experience when they ran track and field. It was their chess tournaments. Like all of these things fold into what you you are as a person. Um, And and I think it's just a good reminder. I think maybe I'm, I'm projecting, but you know, my only full-time job before I left the legal space was a lawyer, right? And and I thought, all right, well, I've done all these other things, but I've only been a lawyer. Can mm-hmm. I go into business development? Can I go into sales? How can I possibly convince somebody that I would be decent at this job? But of course, then you start thinking back, well, I used to work in retail for many years and like I had to convince people to sell stuff, right. you know? So um, I, I love that. And I think, you know, I don't know if you felt this way at the time or at least, or if you're reflecting on it this way now, but I appreciate you sharing that so that other people can hear it and think, huh, okay, maybe my three years of waiting tables in college wasn't, you know, kind of this job I couldn't wait to get rid of. It's something that secured the foundation of who I am today as a professional. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I want to kind of, I want to move ahead a little bit, you know, you, so you got this job at Primacy, you started doing sales there and you continued to grow. Um, and then you, of course, moved to two really large, you know, across the, the span of your career, you moved to um, Grable and then, of course, to, uh, to to Bristol and you worked there for a number of years, mm-hmm. I guess, in, mul- in multiple capacities, right? Like business development, sales, sort of strategic vision. I don't want to gloss over that, but I do want to get to how you started to build Mobility Empowered. Um, but I do want to ask over that time that you spent at these, you know, once you moved past and you went to these two large organizations, um, what were you thinking? Like, were you thinking eventually I want to start my own business or were you kind of thinking, you know, what's the next step? Where can I continue to learn uh, and and further my career? I'm, I'm just sort of curious where, where you were mindset wise. 
the the worst thing for for an um, aspiring entrepreneur is is success with a corporation, a large corporation, um, and I will tell you that. So I you know I went to work for Primacy. It wasn't even started yet. There was they they had a marketing program. We had two employees that were were kind of getting involved in relocation. So it was just getting launched. So the idea of getting in there learning. Uh, trying to figure out how to compete with the other RMCs that were out there because the issue with Armstrong, you know, here's a very successful company, a, a, a tons of resources, profitable, just, they're just an awesome company. I mean, even when I was there, I think they had a 40-year legacy where every year they grew revenue and income over that 40-something year period, which, you know, you look at it and it's in the moving business, which is not, that, that means you had to go through uh, recessions. You had to go through deregulation. You had to go through all of this and, and it requires so much capital investment, but you're successful and you grow and you make money and each year you do that better than the previous year, right? Any industry, any business to be able to say that is, is, is incredible. Um, but they were getting squeezed. I mean, they were they were literally losing customers that they had for 20 or 30 years to outsourcing. So they looked at it and said, well, you know, what do we do? And they one of the ideas that Charlie Bell was the, the person at Armstrong at the time said, I think we compete against them. So let's start looking at some basic services that we do, you know, we don't have to do the home sale piece of it, but we, maybe we get into destination services, maybe we get into home marketing. And I was right at the, at the beginning of that. So as we were doing this, we were learning, we were developing products, we were developing services to what then became a, a, an actual really great tool, a great company to work with. And Primacy became that kind of that first company that was not, sorry for anybody who's on the phone, but, you know, not Cobalt Banker or not PHH or not Prudential, because again, they had a very specific way of doing business and it wasn't necessarily characterized as, as very customer friendly. And with Armstrong and with Primus, you know, they had this Southern culture, um, you know, this, yeah, I'll never forget, you know, one of the time I had a company, it was Seagate, came out to Cal from California. So here they're coming from California, uh, Silicon Valley, and they're doing a fight, a site visit in Memphis, Tennessee. And I'm just thinking, I wonder how this is going to go from a cultural standpoint, right? Because there's there's a lot of yes sirs and yes ma'ams and, and all that kind of stuff. And, and again, I'm, I'm not saying anything negative about the culture. I love the culture. It's just different, right, than California. You know, manners still exist. The doors still get, you, you know where I'm going with all of this, right? People still call somebody sir and ma'am. And they come in there, and I'll never forget, the, the buyer, we sit down in the conference room, we've had a, we've had morning meetings, and then we get in the conference room and it's, it's time to have lunch. Well, the CEO serves her lunch, goes up, you know, it's like a buffet style, ask her what she wants, and he gets her plate and he puts it down for her and ask her what she would like to drink. And, and it wasn't staged. This is just who this guy was. That's all she talked about. She didn't, she didn't talk about the site visit. She didn't talk about the capability. Of course, you know, I want to talk about signing the contract, um, but, but she went on to, you know, this, it, she, it just blew her away. And that was that culture. So they took that culture. They were able to put some really um, tight financial controls around it. I mean, expense management is always the Achilles heels of a lot of RMCs. They had a banker that had gone in there to help run the business who was very transactional minded and they did it very well. And then, you know, when I, I left in 2004, they had 650 employees wow. and, you know, some of the consolidations has, hadn't happened and we were either number three or four in the space. Wow. So learned a lot and then um, decided it was next. For, it was time for the next gig and I was recruited to go to Grable. And what was interesting is I took 13 years of, of training and knowledge and basically put it into one year of rebranding. 
And um, that was a heck of a ride because now you're talking about a much bigger organization um, and they own everything where, you know, primacy, the way that they were set up with agents and all that, it was a different model. So went to Grable and um, it was, uh, it was pretty incredible. But the problem is, is with every one of those steps, you know, they were successful. So that meant I did really well financially. I was taken care of. I had a really, there, there was nothing to push me into doing something on my own. So that's what I mean. It's one of the unfortunate things about a corporate job is if it's really good, you're, you know, it's going to keep you from doing anything else. Yeah. They, I mean, you can call them golden handcuffs or, or something right. of the sort, but, um, that, that, so, and, and when you, when you went to Grable and you, you know, you, you were mentioning that you kind of, you worked about, you talked about rebranding. Are you saying that you came in and you helped, uh, you helped Grable rebrand or you helped them pivot in some way? The way that Grable was set up is that they they had Grable Relocation Management Worldwide. So GRSW was the reload company. They had GMII, which was the international mover. They had Grable Moving and Storage, which were the agencies. They had Grable Van Lines. And then they had Move Management, which was the d- domestic move management company. They all had their own logo. They had their own sales force. They had all of their own P&Ls. And you could legitimately have a company like Shell that was being called on six different people from the same company. Right. So imagine that the other part of it is, and I learned this with, with working with T-Mobile is when they were going to bid and they were then did their site visit, you know, the biggest issue when we were in that conference room was this guy's move, his individual move, the buyer, he's buying a relocation package. And he said, you know, they, I wasn't set up on a direct bill and they wanted my credit card right then, or they're going to hold my money hostage or my stuff hostage. And, you know, and then they broke a bunch of stuff and they didn't sell a claim. And for five hours. That's all he wanted to talk about. So where Grable could be really successful is, you know, we've got this really good boutique at the time, relocation management concept. But you know what I could tell a customer is I could say, you know, not only are can we handle these pieces of it, but I can tell you the name of the driver. I can tell you the name of every crew. I've got the ability to handpick that experience for you. And you know what? That is what became the power of one. And the power of one was we've got all these resources. Let's pull them together under the relocation management umbrella and go to the market with that strategy. So then we went to a single logo. We went to a single uh, business card look and field. We went to a single brand. We then took a sales force of over 100 people and we then got them all into a CRM. We got them all set up to, you know, here's your territory. Here are your prospects. Here's where you're going. And, um, you know, within three years, you know, these are some names you'll recognize, Siemens, T-Mobile, um, Capital One, Fidelity, Norfolk Southern, were all, and plus many more, that equated to about 25,000 relocations wow. that were captured during that period. But probably the most significant thing that happened during that period of time is I, I uh, met my business partner today, Alan Ruth. So Alan was working at Grable. Um, I, I, I like to like to you know comment that it's almost like Batman and Robin. He doesn't like to be called Robin, but I'm not going to be called Robin. But um, <laughs> whenever we went into a best and final, you know, Alan was the guy that went from a technology perspective. And you know, you, I, I don't know if you know this or not, but most of the relocation management companies that are out there are using somebody else's software. There's a few that have their own technology, but they're basically running on Assignment Pro or or Enio or some other products that are out there, and then they might do something to the front end to make it a little bit different. But it's it's pretty much somebody else's system. So what Alan was really good at is he became one of the top experts in Assignment Pro. So when we were in front of a client, he or a prospect, he could figure out how to make Assignment Pro work. And then the other thing 
that he was very good, even in 2005 and 2006, is that it needed a front end because the front end just didn't do what the, the clients were looking for. So he could do that. And then along the way, we, um, we had the opportunity to work with Amazon and get, you know, that, that was closed in 2007. But the whole concept of a marketplace, putting buyers and sellers together, creating a platform, you know, that's the essence of kind of, you know, I wouldn't say it was the genesis for, for Mobilian Power, but it really started the wheels turning of maybe there is a different way to do this. Wow. Yeah. You know, it's really interesting to to think about how you came in from a sales perspective and business development perspective and then sort of maneuvered that into a strategic marketing or and or branding exercise, which of course, once it was completed, started to like it it, it increased the capacity for sales, right? Because now it's clear, like the, the value proposition is clear, the brand is clear, et cetera. Um I can, you know, to your point about golden handcuffs, if I were you, I would be like, this is great. I mean, my career is going swimmingly. I, you know, why would you ever want to leave? Um, I want to take just a quick, quick pause here uh, just to bring up a couple of folks' comments. So Janet just mentioned uh, uh, from New York originally and then love the story. You know, thank you, Janet. Uh, Marianne said waiting tables is great training for life, which I, that got me pocket money in college and taught me a lot about customer and professional services. And being a decorated queen at Mr. Smith's in DC taught me a lot. You know, you know, Marianne, I will say that's almost like brand, like you branded yourself as a daiquiri queen. You know, it's it's like a personal brand at a job, which um, if you translate that into sort of the digital world, you know, it could be your personal brand within a company on LinkedIn or wherever else, you know, um, you could sort of be, you could be who you are and stand out even if whether or not you work for somebody or for yourself. Right. So yeah, I, I totally agree with that. Um, and then David Welch says, Mr. Page from Atlantic taught me all about, uh, HHG, which is Very good. HHG is household goods, household goods. Thank you. See, that's what we say in the, that's what we say in the hood, right, David? <laughs> <laughs> Thank you for your comment uh, there, David. Um, so, so Chris, I kind of want to, I want to move into the space. You talked about the Genesis or at least the sort of part of the inspiration you know, um, I it's it's I kind of want to get into how did this idea of mobility. I know after Grable, you went to Bristol and you obviously spent time there as well. Um, but I want to kind of jump ahead a little bit and and talk about sort of did you start working on mobility and power, or at least thinking about it sort of on your own? You know, at this point, you're an executive. You've you're probably you have a good salary. You're comfortable financially, etc. Um, can you talk about this sort of this moment in your in your life, I guess, where you decided, you know what, I'm going to do something on my own. And by the way, it's going to not it's not going to be a competitor to these organizations, really. It's going to be a technology marketplace. It's going to be something that layers on top of everything I've built. You know, what sort of brought you to that to that moment? I, you know, first of all, as a, as a salesperson, you know, again, it's a lot like athletics, right? How do you get an edge? How, do, how are you the most competitive? How, how are you the best at what you do, right? In sales, it, there's a lot that you can do personally, but then there's also the product. The product has to be good. It has to, you know, whatever brand you're representing, that brand has a promise and that promise has to be fulfilled, right? And that was, you know, again, early on in the career, realized that one of the reasons why I went to Armstrong is because that other brand couldn't, couldn't fit that bill, right? They couldn't make that commitment. And no salesperson, it's hard enough getting a customer, it's even worse losing a customer, right? So um, that churning kind of made me go out there and start looking for some some other opportunities. Mm-hmm. So you develop products, you develop services, and then you you look constantly to create a competitive advantage against everybody else. It was just, even at Armstrong, the fact that we could be a moving company with all of those resources, 
but we were getting beaten by people that had no idea what the business was even about. How did that? And they're making, and by the way, they're even making more money on it than we did. So, you know, what are we doing wrong? So you look at that, you say, well, you know, we, we, we've got to try to do something about that. And then at the same time, even if you don't beat them, how much better am I to beat Atlas or North American or anybody else, right? I now have a product that they don't have. So, you know, I, you know, if I can expand the conversation and do more, I've got a more likely to, to sell and, and to be more successful. So fast forward, constantly looking for ways. Um, and that, that branding is really kind of an evolution of branding. It constantly changes. You know, that's the thing about primacy is they constantly change. But, you know, what was interesting is you're talking about, you know, you didn't even really have BVOs when I first started there. You know, you had home sale bio programs and then this BVO thing was created and then you had that. And then you had outsourcing expense management, which really was not prevalent in the early 90s, right? We said, okay, well, let's, not, let's start reimbursing all your people now. And then now let's handle your assignment. So that evolution was was ongoing within the relocation space. So every stop, you know, that's why I worked on. Try to get that brand, you know, as positioned, positioned as well to compete and then excel. And then and from there, be able to, you know, reach market dominance at some point. So while we were, while I was at Bristol, Alan was, and his name is Alan Ruth. Alan was consulting with us because we were on Assignment Pro and Assignment Pro didn't have a mobile application. Well, we had customers that were saying, what do you mean you don't have a mobile application? And we were competing against some other smaller reload companies that actually had an app. And for whatever reason, they were winning customers because it was important to that customer. So Alan said, I can build an app. It'll bolt on to Assignment Pro and it'll work. Nobody will know the difference, but it'll do, it'll do what you need to do. While we were there, we had the opportunity to talk to some clients and it was becoming very, very obvious at this time that especially around that 2010, 2011, 12, that companies were shifting. They were moving away from these tax protected home sale programs. They were starting to do a lot more college new hires and rotationals and, you know, remote workers and all this kind of stuff. So it was, how do we do that? Well, we use an old model. We have a consultant. They reach out to the person, even though they're a renter, they try to help them and we lose money on every file because what we've just deployed, the customer's not going to pay us that fee, but we'll make it up on everything else. So the idea was, is how do we stop losing money on that population? And then how do we become more competitive with the customers? So while I was at, at, um, at Bristol, Alan was working there. We started talking about, hey, something's happening out there. And, you know, we've been, we tried to find investors. We actually started looking for investors in 20, probably 20, 2009, 2010 in the mobility empowered concept. It wasn't even named at that point. It was this marketplace. It was kind of more of a self-serve and, you know, it, it, there were opportunities there. We knew we had something, but, you know, we needed money to build it. And at that time, you still, you know, you couldn't go to AWS. You couldn't do all those kind of things. There's a lot of money that was involved in building it. So didn't find any takers. And, and I actually met with a lot of different real companies on this. So did Alan. Couldn't get any takers. And then in 2015, um, the executive vice president worked for us and is one of the co-founders as well. It's a guy by the name of Chris Morris. He's a sales guy makes a cold call on a large technology company, gets a couple meetings with them, finds out they're going out to bid for household goods. Uh, we start having conversations about that. You know, we actually can help your whole process because everything is manual. And within the United States, they're removing 10,000 people a year just wow. in the United States. So it's a very big program. Went in there, introduced the concept of mobility empowered. They said, yes, we like this. And we said, you know what, if you'll give us a, a three-year contract, we'll build it and we won't charge you to build it. But if you'll make this commitment, we'll go, you know, we'll do this. So in September of 16, we took our first order 
And then since then, we uh, we crossed uh, 51,000 uh, transferees have gone through the platform, actually moved through through it in 23 different countries. And we've gen- I think we, the, the latest number was we've generated over 130,000 individual service orders. Wow. So that's a move, that's a DSP, that's a corporate apartment, whatever it may be, was all facilitated through that. So that's kind of um, how we got there. And, you know, I'd love to say that I had this idea that, and Alan had, you know, we definitely had an idea that we thought was we could make money on that we thought would be successful that would be well received within the marketplace but it wasn't as if we had an idea of how we were actually going to turn the light on how we were going to make that happen this customer allowed us to do that wow so you you i mean you had the idea over 10 years ago but you had Mm -hmm. to sort of table it because there wasn't enough i guess interest or momentum with it to say Mm -hmm. all right this is worth pursuing now i mean it was to your point i mean aws amazon web services for for folks uh listening or watching it, I mean, they enable so many more companies to start up mm-hmm. because you don't have to buy your own servers. You don't have to set up right. the infrastructure. You just kind of pay a monthly fee and you plug in and you scale up as needed. Um, so it sounds like it, it did help you, you know, as technology more generally moved forward and progressed and, and like it, the enablement factor was, you know, became apparent. Um, and of course, the, the cost of starting this was a little bit lower. Um, you just have to then build on top of in AWS or something like that, mm-hmm. that opened up a little bit more of the door. And then having this client say, I mean, because effectively, okay, you didn't charge them to build it, but the income I'm assuming you got over that Correct. contract, I mean, you have to pay someone, to, I mean, you have to have money to build it, right? Right. Um, so, it, you know, which is, which is really, to your point, I mean, I don't know if it's, I wouldn't say it's lucky. You know, one could say that that's luck, but you guys were hustling, having conversations, and like your brain was thinking this way. Mm-hmm. Some another person would have just continued on with whatever you were doing, but you said, "You know what? We have another pitch. Why don't we pitch right. you this idea?" Right? I'm curious. You know, I don't know. What do you think? Kind of because it sounds like you did that, and then you you thought, "All right, well, we've got something. I don't know if this is going to be a million dollar idea or whatnot, but we've got something." What allowed you to go to Bristol and say, "Look, I, I'm, you know, I'm going to go out and do my own thing." Like, mm-hmm. was it was it this client that made you feel, "All right, we've got to give this a shot." Or was it just, I don't know, were you kind of done with corporate? It, you know, it's really kind of a, it's really kind of a strange situation. When I was selling logistics for North American, I was, uh, one of my largest customers, by the way, was Northern Telecom, right? It, it only made sense that I would go back and talk to them about their logistics work. And I knew the, a lot of the project people. I was able to get started there, but guess what was happening to computers? They were getting smaller. Everything was getting smaller and where you needed to have moving trucks before, you know, they could go FedEx. So I saw this, I saw, I, I saw this evolution happening. So within North American, they have these trucks, which are crane vans. They're, they're 53 foot trailers and they have a hydraulic crane that goes on the top. So you can lift up very long, long items. So they could be long and heavy. They could be bulky, but you know, again, you can go to a job site, you can lift them out, take them outside the van, lower them to the ground. Very simple in concept, but there's not a whole lot of people out there that have these trucks. So when I saw this shift coming at North American, I saw my sales start to decline. I was actually losing customers. And I'm like, well, I'm going to focus on this. And then I, I went after two categories. I went after the elevator manufacturers, because if you've ever seen an elevator, you know, a key component is long pipes and it's, it's part of that shaft and they're disassembled. They fit in the van, but you've got to have some way to offload them. Plus you've got materials that have to be protected. So went after elevator companies and then I went after lift manufacturers, automotive lift mm-hmm. manufacturers because they were shipping these pieces of steel, 4,500 pounds each. And the most common method was they would tie a chain around it, 
tie it to a post in the garage or whatever. And they would put some tires on the ground and they would pull the truck out and the lift would fall out of the ground. And they, they wondered why, you know, there were so many claims, That's even though it was steel, right? Because it didn't always land the right way. By the end of that, within a year and a half, I was shipping three out of every lift manufactured in the U.S., so that's where when we kind of got to the other ideas that I worked on within my career, I did have a tremendous amount of confidence that, you know, people will buy the right idea, right? It's just, do you have the research? And in that case, I was able to find already existing resources and put it to a problem. With this case, we knew right at the beginning, we knew before we launched it what it would do. I mean, we, and here's another interesting thing is I was doing some research and I tell people this, if you're really bored and you can't sleep, go read the 2020 census report. And not because of the redistricting, everybody hears about the redistricting, but there's a lot of great data in there. And one of the data elements is in there is it tells you the people that move every year. So I looked at 19, I didn't want to look at 20 because 20 you know been skewed by the pandemic, just like you can't look at 21 and say that's indicative of anything, right? The closest you got to look at is 19 pre-pandemic. There were 37 million Americans that moved that year. Three and a half million of those moved for a job. Three and a half million. So if you take all of the relocation that the RMCs total, I can't get over a half a million. If I, if I use their stated numbers, I can't get over a half a million. So what that tells me is there are three and a half million people that work because of a job and the RMCs only have 12% of that volume. So even if I can't beat the RMCs with this product, our client didn't use an RMC. Our launch client was not with an RMC because the RMC didn't have the technology or they were too expensive and they weren't willing to pay the price. So you look at that and you go, you know, that's not, for those of you that read the book, that's not a red ocean, that's a blue ocean. There's a lot of opportunity there. So we knew that, that we were onto something. Now we had a launch customer. So let's talk about Mobility Empowered now. Um, what does it do and, and okay. sort of who does it serve? So the first thing of what we do, and again, a lot of the market, and this is what I have to, fight constantly or change the, the conversation is it's a lump sum tool. We can sign up an employee, they can go in there and they, you know, they have their cash and they can go out there and they can, you know, buy services. That's certainly part of what it does. So if you look at what we do, a component of what we have is the marketplace and think of it like Amazon, but it's focused on relocation. So if I'm relocating myself and I need a mover, I can get quotes. If I need to ship an auto, I've got, you know, great rates to ship an auto. If I need to sell a home, buy a home, get a mortgage, get temporary living, all of that is ship a pet, you know, get insurance like health insurance or even uh, travel insurance. That's all within the marketplace. So that's the easy part of it. What we really focused on was not just the marketplace, but the whole talent mobility function itself. So when you consider that somebody is going through a relocation, there's an entire onboarding function. And that onboarding has nothing to do with relocation. It has to do with job mobility, but not mobility in itself. So we focus on the, how do we onboard somebody coming into the process, regardless of what they're, regardless of whether they're relocating or not, what are they doing and how are they coming on board and how does that client communicate with them through the whole process? And then how do we get services deployed for them during that and get money to them? Because they're not an employee yet, right? They're not on the payroll yet. So how do you function with all, how do you get documents signed that are required? That's all through this onboarding function. Then once they become a relocation and approved for relocation, then we do things like, get, you know, facilitate getting the repayment agreements signed, acknowledged, or the policy acknowledged repayment agreements done. But then they have expenses. So we process their expenses throughout. We pay supply bills. We do all the supplier audits. We do all of the worldwide contracting with the suppliers. So we're able to go to a client and we're able to say, first of all, we can handle contracts anywhere in the world. So we can be your single point for contracts. The second thing is, is we can handle all of your PO systems for you, service orders. So we place all of that. We perform the audits. We then consolidate all the billing. We then work with the client to figure out, are we billing within region, within country? What are we doing? Are we doing conversions? And then how do we handle all of the reporting back to the client? 
So that's the that's a very quick version of what the, what we do. But then on top of that, that could be a managed cap customer. So our largest customer customers are not lump sums; they're managed caps. So this is the client that says, "I'm going to move my people, and I'm going to give them up to fifty thousand dollars." And these are the items that they can spend the fifty thousand dollars on. But we're not going to lump sum them. We're going to we're going to give them access to the tool. We're going to give them a budget, and they can do anything that they want to within this budget or within this portal, as long as it keeps with under that under that number. That's their most common customer. From an immigration standpoint, you obviously cover both internal sort of domestic moves and also international moves, right? Mm -hmm. So I'm wondering with international moves, there's obviously this sort of added layer of immigration and compliance and things like that. I know that, or what what does Mobility Empowered or do or, or, or what can it do to help support that as what I'm assuming is just sort of another layer of the entire mobility process. Yeah, so you, so now we're getting an area where I'm probably very uncomfortable talking about, but I'll take it, especially knowing the host knows a little bit about immigration. So um, this is a very layman's opinion of this, but sure. basically you've got people that are moving into the U.S., you're not going to suggest that they use a destination service provider to handle the immigration work. You're going to work with an attorney, right? There's so much risk and so much that has to be accomplished. However, when you're going to other parts of the world, it could be a work permit, it could be a residency permit, it could be local registration. And those are things that can be facilitated on the ground without necessarily using an attorney, right? Mm -hmm. So in that case, we do that through our tools. So a client will get us set up. As an example, I'll have about I'll have between six and 800 people that'll go into Germany this year. And that's all of that is facilitated with my partner on the ground. But we've also created a special application within our tool to be able to facilitate that, to be able to go ahead and get the uh, get it initially set up and then handle the renewals, keep track of the renewals and those types of things. Um, so that's what we do. The other thing we do is our systems for our larger customers is our system is actually integrated with their tool. So it's a very simple process of are they travel ready or not, right? And it's a simple check. It comes back yes or no. If they're yes, then we know the person's ready to go. We can book their travel. We can order their services. So no, we wait until we get that yes. And so theoretically, okay, so you talk about Germany and you're talking about inbound, you know, work permit requirements and things like that. Um, theoretically, could you then work with folks across the world, um, partners across the world, and then build out whether it's a module or something else to help enable that? Because to your point, I mean, let's say you're traveling within Europe, it might be a little bit easier, um, or maybe within North America, like from Canada, let's say to the US, it is could be a little bit easier than traveling from you know, China to the U.S. or India to the, to the U.S. Um, so is there room for international expansion? Like, can you partner or do you want to partner with more providers on the ground in different parts of the world so that when your large clients or new, new clients coming in, when they want to use the platform, they can still use it or they can use it in addition uh, to like their Germany, let's say, to move folks to France or to South Africa or to, you know, wherever. Yeah, it, it actually doesn't. And again, it, so what we do is we pretty much, we take it by client by client, and then we take it country by country. And then again, that, that almost, you know, think of it as individual programs, right? So our largest client has 167 policies, which sounds like a lot of relocation, and it is a lot of relocation policies, but then you look at it and they're in 43 countries. Well, you know, you now do the math. That's that's not a lot of policies per country. 
but each country has a different, right, a different benefit package. In the U.S., I can do unaccompanied apartment search or home search all day long. It's not an issue. We've got, you know, we've got the data. We can get into MLS services. We can do all this stuff. So it works really well. If I go to the U.K., they don't have a centralized uh, platform where I can go look at, go find a flat. So I'm going to need help to do that. You go to an Ireland, and if you're not Irish going into Ireland, in fact, if you're not from the West, you're probably not going to get the attention of a landlord. You're probably not even going to be able to have a, a conversation. So in that situation, you have to have a host. You actually literally have somebody to accompany Germany. You know, the leases aren't in English. So unless you read German, um, you're not going to know how to interpret a lease. So what we try to do is take it country by country and then work on it specifically. From an immigration standpoint, where we've been to this point is that the clients that are extremely sophisticated, it's a complete, it's a whole other silo. I mean, they look at it and it's how do the two systems connect and we've worked on those connection points. And then on the smaller clients, it's normally country specific and that's where it's going to be. We're going to be centered probably around a DSP partner to do some of that work. So a question here, um, and maybe this is really broad, but I mean, the question is how does one partner with Mobility Empowered? I assume the answer depends on who you're talking about. Is it mm-hmm. is it a moving company? Is it a provider? Is it a lawyer? Is it a client? Um, but you know, what do you, you know, for folks who might be interested and, and you know, think like, okay, how do I plug into this ecosystem, into this marketplace mm-hmm. that you're building? How can folks can, how can companies even figure out if they can partner with Mobility Empowered? It, well, for, it starts a little bit about the marketplace, about, I would say, probably close to 80% of our supplier partners are client-sponsored. Right. So we work with the client. They say, you know, this is my DSP. This is my mover. This is who I use for my lender, whatever it may be. This is my banker. And then what we do is we work to integrate those partners within the within the platform. And then maybe less than 20 percent is where they actually they're actually going to come to us and say, hey, who who do you think we should plug in with us? Because what we've done, which is which I think is very important, is that we've integrated those supplier partners into the platform. Right. And, you know, we have three customers. Customer one is going to be that relocating employee. Number two is the client, not in this order, but number two is going to be the client. And number three is going to be that supplier. Mm -hmm. Because if that supplier isn't being, getting their orders on time, getting information accurately, if they're having to do too many steps, that's all, if they don't get paid on time, those are all things that are going to cost the customer at the end of the day. So when we work with those partners, we're constantly looking at it. And again, when you think about what we've built, we've got an entire supplier module we've built to try to make it easier to do business with us. Got it. Got it. So the idea would be that both can individuals just utilize mobility empowered if they are if they're a lump sum employee and you know their company says here's 10 grand to make this move mm-hmm. happen or do they have to go and say great in order for me to use mobility empowered though you know HR team or mobility team you have to sign up for it first as a company and then I can use it so what we we have looked at, this is this experience, is if there's no commitment from the customer, there's going to be very little uptake, right? It's just because it's not, you know, when you think about a relocation, you know, do you want that person, they've already been hired and they want to move tomorrow and they're looking for a moving van, you know, that's not the point we want them. You know, that's not a point a mover wants them, right? Certainly a realtor is not going to have access to them. So part of what we've tried to work with with corporate clients, and again, you know, the first the first part of the conversation will be, well, we don't have a budget to outsource. Well, you don't know what the price is yet. I think, you know, let's, let's, let me give you some ranges and you can tell me if that's ridiculous or not. And in most cases it's like, well, that's not ridiculous. So let's continue the conversation. So what we are looking for is that even though you might just be giving a lump sum, we do want some ownership from the corporate client because, you know, how does the employer, how are they even aware of it? Right. And, and then also it's how do we help make your program more attractive 
right? When that training, you know, think about it, you're, you're a candidate and you're talking to your, the client company, and you're interviewing them and they go, well, we just give you money and let you do your own thing versus, hey, we've already signed you up to Mobility Empowered, to the, hu- the talent hub, and you're going to receive an email to log in. And oh, by the way, it's got all your new community information in there. It's got a lot of cool stuff about the company and you can start already working on your potential relocation. You can go in and evaluate schools or if you want to look at different communities about costs and those types of things. So, you know, what we're looking to do is we're trying to move that that discussion way back. And that that requires some customer support, client support to be able to get that done. Otherwise, we'll, we get people too late. Yeah, it makes sense. I mean, otherwise, you're going from a B2B to a B2C model. And then, of course, mm-hmm. you know, then then it's a whole different approach. And not to say that there's no merit there, but you can't be spending a lot of time you know, trying to close deals because those deals may be a one-off and they won't be a ton of, you know, ton of money for you, which of course, from a business perspective, makes the, the cost benefit not make too much sense. Uh, one of the questions that, that I, I kind of wanted to get to is where, you know, the company has been around for f- since 2017. Right. 17, 16 is when the site went live, but the actual company started, legal company started January of 17. Yeah. Got it. I got it. So, you know, it's been four years, it's been over four years. We're going on, well, actually, we're close to five now. Yeah. Um, you know, you, you've obviously, you started off with this one client, gave you a three year. I, I'm curious, during that first three year commitment, did you only focus on that one client or when you built it out or did you sort of start doing sales right away once you once you knew that this thing was going to happen. I'm we, yeah, we started talking to other companies as we were building it. And, and it was more of a, hey, this is what we're building. I want to share it with you. You know, a lot of kind of case testing of this is kind of where we're going with this. Do you, you know, you see the merit, you know, what do you think kind of a thing. And then once it went live, then we got a little bit more aggressive about it. But I will tell you, you know, the best way to describe version one it was a car, but it was, you know, the crank windows and it didn't have a radio in it. And if you roll down the windows, you got air conditioning. So, you know, it, it, it probably did 20 things specific for this client and it was solely for North America. And then from there, and this is why I can never, ever stress the value of a great customer in that they worked with us. So they would say, okay, can you do this? And we would say, let us go back to the lab. Let us come back to you. Yes, we can do this. This is how we can get it deployed. What is your commitment if we get this deployed? Well, we'll give you that country and we'll give you that product. So then we started then growing beyond, you know, not just within the U.S., but into the U.S. Then we started looking at, you know, people going back to different areas of the country. Then we looked at Europe and some other places um, to get them ramped. But at the same time, you know, that was on version one. Then we went to version two and version two was better, but it it wasn't what the it, it wasn't what we would have said was spectacular. We went to version three about four months ago. It's spectacular. It's it really fit the vision of what we all along thought that this was going to be. And that's where we started. Now we started to bring on more customers. And I will tell you, you know, we went into the fall, not the fall, this, the uh, first quarter of 20. And we were up over 300 percent over the first quarter the previous year. Wow. And it was, this is incredible, right? And we already had decent growth the year before that. And then, uh, and then, sept- uh, then March hit, second week of March and COVID, and then borders shut down. And then we kind of did this. So we, we went from a high and then we, I think the lowest point we were, we were trickle, trickling along at about 15% of normal activity. Wow. And then it's been a slow, not necessarily even build out of it, but a, a slow build out of it. And then the unfortunate thing about that period of time is customers stopped buying. Right. I mean, there were customers that were going to RFP and they were they they were looking, but it 
anytime I've ever been involved in a recession, you know, I can remember September 11th. I can remember 2008. Um, I can remember other events and you could, you know, the savings and loan crisis, you can sell out of that. You just, you sell smarter, you work harder, you just go get more customers, right? I mean, that's what you have to do and you can sell out of it. This is the situation where you can't sell out of it. You've got to, you have to really believe in what you're doing and you have to stay focused. And, you know, as we saw our orders going down, we still had the same investment spend when it came to the deployment of the product. So we still had, we still were able to hit the deployments. We were still able to release version three. We were able to enhance our talent hub, which got some really positive feedback. And then probably, I would say probably May, June of this year, it's almost like customers started to wake up again and say, you know, we're going to be moving people again. Maybe we want to look at our program. And you know what? Let's, you know, we have we have one of the largest auto manufacturers in the world um, that we've taken over their intern product. And this was ready to launch pre-COVID. I mean, we were, we were there. Our contracts were done. We were ready to go. And it was like, well, they're going to be virtual. And I don't know how many of them they're going to be. So, but, you know, now we start to see a little bit of a recovery and, you know, here we are. Have you made any updates or changes or, or have you had to shift anything taking into consideration what this sort of post-pandemic wor- world might look like? Not much. And the, and the reason I say not much is because we were all, we were already working with project-oriented staff, right? So we the concept of remote workers and keeping you know track of them and where they are and doing all of that we was pretty much, we already had that built in. We're going to possibly see pretty quick, especially based on the announcement yesterday, are, is are some of our clients going to ask us for vaccine verification, you know, have that updated and posted into the system, possibly. They haven't asked yet, but it's probably around the corner now. That's already built if we need it. So we, the functionality is already there, but I could see something like that, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's interesting, right? I mean, the, and the, that's, you know, not to not to get into that side of the discussion, but when, you know, when there's a mandate coming down from government, you know, that can really shift the way businesses do things. Even if it's a minor shift, that shift trickles down because they said, okay, well, we need to do, we need to have this information or proof or what have you, but we have to go to all, all of our providers and, mm-hmm. you know, make sure they have that. I always wonder, and, you know, not to, not that there's maybe an answer, but like, what do you do? I mean, if you say no, the client's going to say, well, we need to have this, right? right. So you're, you're going to have to build it. But then the question is, do you charge them for it? Right. Or do you take that as a loss because you know that it's a requirement? You know, um, I always think that's kind of interesting. You, you mentioned before kind of having this really great client, this first client who grew with you, right, mm-hmm. who enabled your growth. And as you hit the, you know, check the boxes that they wanted you to check, they gave you a little bit more and then they gave you a little bit more and they gave you a little bit more. Um, I mean, that's so wonderful. But then I always wonder, you know, if you don't have that, you probably sh- you either have to raise money right? From right. outside investors, or you have to just sort of stay small and say, look, we can't, you either pay us for it or like we, we just, we can. And I don't know. I find that sort of question or that dilemma interesting. I think when you, when you look at something like that, and again, we, we would do it and we've got the functionality because we, you know, again, we get repayment agreements, we get assignment letters signed. You know, so that documentation, we scan receipts, we do all that kind of stuff in the system. But now when you talk about a vaccine card, who, who's going to validate that card? I mean, no, we, we're not going to validate cards. We're going to validate that there's something there. And it give you an idea how tricky this is, is I got a call from my credit card company and they said, you know, you've got $2,000 from Home Depot. And I said, I have $2,000 from Home Depot, from where? And they go, Garden Grove, California. I said, well, I can tell you, I've never been to Home Depot in Garden Grove, California. And they said, well, we have your signature. And I said, okay, can you send me the signature? So they text me the signature, the statement, and it's mayhem is how it's signed. The person on the phone literally thought that that was my signature. And I'm like, you know, my last name is Klein. It's not mayhem. 
can you read that back to me? She goes, ma'am. The point being is no human can, I mean, if you can't even get a signature right in interpretation, imagine trying to look at a vaccination card and, right. and knowing whether, and it's scanned in to begin with. So how do you even begin to know whether that thing's real or not? So, and, and, yeah. and, you know, and part of it might be in the agreements. I mean, for uh, with Laborless, it's the same thing. We provide a compliance platform for H-1B visa employers mm-hmm. and, and attorneys, but we can't validate this the documentation that these folks upload. And so we tell them, look, we could, to your point, we can tell you if there's a file there or not, because mm-hmm. that's the system can see. But if you're asking us to say like, okay, we've uploaded something, I need you to check whether or not it's correct. We can't know that because A, you're, you know, that requires an eyeball on every single thing uploaded. And B, that requires context that might not even be within the system. The context mm-hmm. might be somewhere that's, you know, in their HR platform or wherever else, you know, you guys get your data, we get our data. So I find that interesting. I also see you know, then you're, you're, you're talking about, well, then is the value not in pure SaaS, but in sort of a SaaS enabled service where you say, mm-hmm. look, we've got the platform and we will have the staff to look this over, make sure it's okay, help you fix it. The problem is that's much more expensive because that's right. human capital that you have to think about. And, you know, it's been interesting for me to think about from the immigration stamp, immigration technology standpoint, I definitely see more tech-enabled services um, co- popping up. Not a ton because it's a pretty small industry, but you know, thinking about like, hey, we have this tech in-house and we have the staff that will help you with the thing that you you need rather than here's a tool. You know, we'll support the tool. Right. You, you have to do all the work with the tool. And that's not, and again, that's, you know, our model when we looked at this is that, you know, we didn't build technology for the sake of building technology, right? And we've all, you know, because we had people, hey, can we just license it? Can we do whatever? And it's like, well, we didn't build it for somebody to license it, right? We built it, you know, the entire audit process is built around, you know, we don't want to look at 100% of receipts. We don't want to look at supplier bills. We want them to be formatted in a way that we can read it, interpret the data and approve it. Um, And, you know, for the most part, I mean, I can even remember during peak periods, we were probably having to look at 3%, actually having a human look at 3% because we were able to build the logic around it to where wow. it could look at the receipt, it could interpret it, it could match it against what the service order was, and it was able to go through. So, you know, you're, and I think about, you know, even today, there's RMCs that are physically looking at bills. Yeah. And, you know, there's definitely something to be said about a human touch, but at some point, a human touch is just inefficient like that. One of the common uh, conversations I have with people is, well, you're low touch. And, you know, again, I counter that by saying, no, absolutely, I'm high touch. And I said, I'm high touch because, you know, I'll challenge any RMC to demonstrate that they're that they can have somebody available 24 hours a day, 365 days a year. Show me one that can actually do that. There's some that are getting there, but for the most part, I can say that with anybody, right? And the idea is, is, you know, the old RMC model, it's a consultant and it's a transfer and they're tethered by the phone or by email. Why can't I do like anything else? You know, I, I can talk to, I can, so I can talk to the bot who can answer up to 1500 questions if I want and like, where's my expense check, right? Or whatever. When's my shipment going to deliver? You know, those are things that the, or, you know, the most important question is, or statement is I want to talk to a live agent. Well, then you get a live agent and that agent's there, they're standing by to help you. I can't ask somebody who likes customer service. You know, I love the fact that I can go through my app and say, hey, I've got a question about, you know, my code doesn't work to get into the temporary living. Can you help me? And oh, by the way, when that happens, it creates an alert to the call center that does the temporary living. And if we got a project a property manager, it goes to them as well. So, you know, that can't be done by a, by a coordinator, right? In near the time I can do it. And you know what? 
as someone who very often calls service providers and asks to speak to a you know live representative, I only do that because I know that their technology will not help me and that their FAQs are insufficient and their bot doesn't understand me. <laughs> if I can type for, I'll give you an example. I had a, 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 an issue today with, I keep getting these damn paper credit card statements and I feel like I put on, you know, paperless, right? But I don't remember. And I couldn't find any information. I logged into the bank, couldn't find it in the bank. I Googled it. I thought maybe they have, you know, kind of an FAQ, nothing. So I had to call. And obviously the the, the call tree doesn't have, you know, if you want to learn about paperless, it, you have to go and talk to an agent. If they had a bot on their website, I mean, I use Google as sort of the bot, right? Because right. Google is supposed to be smart. But if I could go into the, the bank's website and say, how do I turn on paperless uh, you know, and, and it said, sure, here, click on this thing. And we'll, I don't need to talk to a person. I just want my question answered. Right. So to your point, if the logic is there, if the, you know, if it, whether a chat bot or something else, if it's good enough to me, I would say this is wonderful customer service. And I never talk to a human being. I just right. want my question answered. So I totally agree with you from the perspective of defining high touch versus low touch. And even the mobile application, I mean, what the idea is that I should be able to go into that application and find out when my shipment's going to deliver. Why am I, you know, why am I having to call anybody to get that information? We've also built in some things with the application where you can do instant alerts um, based on whatever service it is that you have a problem with, right? You don't even have to call somebody. So, you know, we've, we've tried to look at this and say, how do we, how do we keep that person from calling to begin with? How do we simplify the policy? How do we handle the onboarding better? You know, these simple things like, you know, when somebody submits and expenses and it's you know it's supposed to be taxes withheld right we we do we show them the calculations the calculations are being run for them so they can say i'm not going to get five thousand i'm going to get thirty five hundred dollars and here's why mm-hmm. you know we 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 cut our phone calls in half when we instituted that Jeez. because people forgot that they were having taxes withheld you know yeah i think that's i think that's huge um and especially if you're if you're looking at the business's bottom line if you can cut out unnecessary questions and phone calls and things like that. Um, so m- my question to you then is, you know, sort of to, to wrap up the conversation, where is mobility empowered heading? I mean, you just launched version three, you said, and, mm-hmm. you know, which is super exciting. Um, what's your, you know, your vision, whether it's, whether you have a vision for, you know, the next two years or the next 20 years, kind of where is the company moving right now and sort of what should people be excited about, I guess. I think where we're at, we're now open. We have businesses in India, Ireland, the US and Philippines. And then we are, we're, we've just set up a legal entity within UAE. So I think from a location standpoint, I think we're in pretty good shape. I think we're the next part of where the organization is going is that we believe that we've gotten to a point now where we've got a proven model. We have customers. We think that we're on the right direction. And I think where the next phase of it is, is how do we get much bigger, much quicker? So you mentioned the, the whole part about we've boots strapped the entire business. We've actually worked to do this. Um, we now are in the process of a capital raise. Wow. And the idea being is that instead of getting there in three years, we want to get there in you know a year. Because again, you've got a product, the market is asking for the product. So how do you get that out there? Well, now you've got to start spending some money on marketing, getting the brand out there. Some of the product development, because even you know where we're at from some of the concepts on the talent is we're probably from a, from a mobility standpoint, we're really happy with where we're at, but we're now starting to look at some other applications to that and that's going to require some development as well. So that's, you know, that's the next, that's the next stage of our, of our business, I guess. That's super exciting. Yeah. You know, and it, it's cool to see marketplaces popping up because it gives clients much more of the, it gives them the power to do the things that they need to do at their leisure, you know, at, at a timeline on a timeline that works for them. And, and I, I, I love that, you know, I, everyone talks about the Amazon of, right. 
Um, but not to say that mobility empowered is the Amazon of global mobility or, or relocation, but I think the the inspiration could certainly be there of like, look, whatever you need, it's there. You know, you're going to get good value and a good, you know, and, and you're going to get insight and you're going to get the support that you need. And you, you, it's all within one, you know, platform. What's absolutely amazing about Amazon is you, you know, I think about when I first started working with them in 2007, they were still in the, um, the insane asylum, which was on top of the hill. And it used to be a mental hospital. That was their headquarters. And then they were moving about 6,000 people a year. I think I heard that last year they moved 45,000 people, right? So behemoth, but with working with them, I remember the public criticism about they're not making enough money or they lost money in a quarter. And Bezos kept saying, it's coming, it's coming. This is what we have to do. We have to get here. Um, and he did it. Or he, it wasn't him. He has a wonderful organization around his leadership, got it done. But when you look at what that company has done and what a lot of people don't realize is they're not just a retailer. You know, when you consider what they've done from a technology um, and then you look at it from a logistics standpoint, I mean, they decided they weren't going to deal with FedEx or UPS anymore. So it, they made the announcement. It seemed like six months later, you see these great trucks in your neighborhood. And it's like, how did you hire that many people that fast? How did you get the equipment? And, and now you get you any airport I go to, I see a prime plane sitting out there on the tarmac. So, you know, they said, we're not going to be relying on UPS or FedEx. We're going to do our own thing. And they did it. So, you know, the logistics, the marketing, the technology, I mean, that's, I mean, it's amazing what they put together as an organization. Yeah. Yeah. It's yeah. You, you can break that company up into a million different pieces and each one of those pieces would be a huge and well-oiled machine of itself. Yeah. So I, you know, to end the, the call, I guess I'm curious, I love to, I mean, depending on the conversation, I try to end it in, in different ways. I feel like with, with you, I'd really love to know, I mean, if you could give yourself some advice now, you know, you, you're growing, you're in many different parts of the world. You've, you know, you've gone from this one wonderful client to a lot of different clients. Of course, you've now launched V3 of, of Mobility Empowered. You're starting to a capital raise. You know, what would you tell yourself, you know, back in like 2009, 2010, when you sort of had this little nugget of an idea and it kind of didn't go anywhere? I, I wonder if you could go back because I think that kind of advice is useful to people who might be you in 2009. And by the way, not on top of an already successful career, but someone who's earlier along, they might not have as much money or confidence in themselves to like build something. So I'm curious, you know, kind of what, what advice you would, you know, maybe give yourself from back then. You know, it's really strange because I can look back early on in my, I mean, if I would have looked at a high school graduate and said, you know, where will I be at 40? It would have been, what kind of a business do I own and how successful is the business? I never even imagined that I would be working for a company at 40. Right. It was. And and again, my 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 mom was a hairdresser. My dad was a tool and die maker. So it wasn't like I came from a family of entrepreneurs. Right. So I looked at that and I for whatever reason, that was my journey. That's where I thought I would end up. Well, it I didn't end up that way. So you, you might look at that and say, well, well, OK, well, now you're in your 50s when you start a business. You know, you, you're kind of a little behind the, the you know, the cur you know, you waited too long. What happened? Um, and I don't look back at that with regret. Because I think that, you know, depending on whatever anybody's faith is, if you believe that you're where you're supposed to be when you're supposed to be there and you're paying attention and you're doing the things you're supposed to do, you, you're going to get there. So I don't look at it as regret. I think that all of those experiences have led to what I can do now. And, you know, going through this pandemic and then the whole idea of launching a concept and all of that, I don't know that I would have been mature enough to do it. I don't know that I would have had the, you know, I would have been more of the, 
you know, cut twice, measure once versus measure twice, cut once kind of a person, you know, shoot and then aim. So, you know, that takes maturity to get to the point where you don't do those kind of things anymore. So I, I just think it's a journey. I think the, the advice is just pay attention. And, and, you know, the other thing is I do talk to people where they're just miserable in their job. It's like, get out of it. There, there is no reason to stay in a mis- You know, I can honestly say that I, the jobs that I was in, I enjoyed. And when I didn't enjoy them anymore, I moved on. So, right, it was pretty obvious that it was time to, and you asked about the whole mobility empowered thing. Um, this was a conversation, it was around Christmas. Bristol made the deal with uh, uh, BGRS to buy about 400 customers. I think, it, no, it's 170 customers and they made that deal. And I worked to try to figure out how do you do the funding? What does it look like? How do you get the cash? You can't be all dead. Started working on these conversations and you could tell that the company, it was going to be a material investment for the organization. So we're having these and, you know, again, I've been managing long enough to go, can you afford your sales force any longer? right? Can you afford me? Can you afford some other people? And the reason I mentioned that is if you do this deal, you're going to double the size of the company. So, you know, I proactively had that conversation because I didn't want to have a conversation, that uncomfortable conversation six months from now saying, hey, we got to cut some people. We got to cut your salary. We got to do whatever because, and by the way, with any acquisition, the numbers didn't didn't materialize, right? But you still had to pay, you know, you still had to pay that off. So even at that point, that it wasn't like I made the decision that I'm just going to go do this. It was, hey, this is what's going on. And I don't know if subconsciously I said, hey, if I do this, I can now go focus full time on mobility and power. Maybe that was going on in my mind. I don't know. But, you know, I was the one that proactively said, you know, why? And I still remember that I was in Hong Kong and it was from, from a hotel room and um, said, you know, this is, you know, this is where we're at as an organization. Let's not be shy about having that conversation because it's, if it's, it's all, and I was right, it wasn't going to need to happen. I just was probably six months ahead of when it, the drop dead date of what it would happen. So, you know, again, that was the right decision. And it was, it was, again, a decision that was, that I didn't necessarily make but it helped get me to the next, the next stage. Yeah. And you know what, that's, that, that goes back into being present and realizing what's the situation, what does this mean for my life and for the future of the organization? And like, can I use this right now as a jumping off point and actually a positive next step rather than, oh man, what's going to happen to my job and things? No, I mean, no hurt feelings. There was, nobody was upset about it. It's like, it's literally like, okay, you're spending 30% of that acquisition on a couple key pieces of sales. That, the company could probably do without right now for the next few years. Yeah. 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 I love it. Yeah. That's such great advice. And, you know, I, I will say this, my mom right now is going back to, to grad school and she's getting her MBA awesome. and, and part of it was her like feeling, you know, it's everyone is so much younger in my, in my, you know, et cetera, et cetera. But I love your kind of thought of, look, it's a, it could be your superpower because you have so much more experience and so much more knowledge than all these other people. And B, there's never a right or wrong time. There's always the time. Right. So whenever that happens, go in it, go, go full force um, and just like take whatever comes your way. So I, you know, that, I think that advice really hits, it's uh, close to home. And by the way, if I can say I launched my company at like 27 or 28, when a lot of my friends who didn't go to law school and got a great job right after college and were there already for six or eight years mm-hmm. or, or nine years, I was, I already felt behind, you know? And, you know, you probably, if you launched your company in your 50s, you might look at somebody right. who's launching in their 28 and be like, you're a kid. What are you talking about? So it's all perspective. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Chris, I think we can go on forever. Um, thank you. This was awesome. I really appreciate your advice and, and sharing your, your journey. I think it's really, I love that you had this really crazy and successful career in corporate and now are taking that sort of energy and passion and really building a really big and successful company of your own. So um, thank you. And, and, you know, best of luck. And 
I hope to hear you have you come back and, and share your your wins over the next year. Awesome. Hey, thanks for having me today. Thank you. 